0: Welcome back to the program. As we watch day after day the government response to a potential Ebola crisis, we're reminded of so many mistakes that various government agencies at so many levels of government have made in response to previous disasters. It hardly fills us with confidence. Katrina, of course, remains in all of our minds, and more recently, Superstorm Sandy, exactly two years ago, where municipal response, particularly in New York, would have embarrassed even the Keystone Cops. My guest, Katherine Miles, delves deeply into Sandy, and what she tells us could, if we pay attention, save a lot of lives in the future. Katherine Miles serves as writer in residence for Green Mountain College. Her article for Outside Magazine on Hurricane Sandy was named a must read by The New Yorker, and it is my pleasure to welcome Catherine Miles here to talk about her new book, Superstorm, Nine Days Inside Hurricane Sandy. Catherine, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, it's my pleasure to be here. Great to have you here. Has there been, either in New York or New Jersey or among any of the municipal agencies that were involved in Sandy, has there been any really after-storm reassessment of how the response worked and really any real internal analysis of what went on?
1: Well, that's really what led me to, to write this book, was because so much of the forecasting and the response to Sandy went wrong, we've really still been left kind of scratching our heads and trying to figure out how to deal with this, not just on a local level, but really on a national level. And that's what I wanted to unpack in the book.
0: And what went wrong was not just once Sandy hit, but what went wrong was in the forecasting. Talk a little bit about that.
1: That's right, and really what we're dealing with here is a is a nationwide meteorological infrastructure crisis. We've really consistently underfunded our national weather organizations, and as a result, as a country, we've been left really flat-footed in the face of natural disaster. What Sandy showed us was how all of these strict and sometimes really Byzantine protocols really uh, fail to serve us. So when Sandy became something other than a traditional hurricane, the National Hurricane Center literally could not issue advisories, watches, or warnings. They made the really contentious decision to hand over responsibility to these small, sometimes understaffed National Weather Service regional offices, who were left with this Herculean task to do something that, that it usually takes like the strong arm of the federal government to take care of.
0: And, in fact, you talk about one or two individuals that were really urging them to just call it a hurricane and be done with it, that it could save lives and that that we didn't have to worry about the language so much as what the consequences would be.
1: This is still a very hot-button, controversial subject in meteorological circles, was what is the responsibility to the general public? Would we have saved more lives if the meteorologists would have ultimately lied and called Sandy a hurricane? Would they, as one meteorologist said, be perpetrating fraud against the American public and lose more credibility? So there were a lot of ethical questions at stake. Whether or not they were solved well is still like I said, a very contentious issue, very much an argument in meteorological circles.
0: Explain why this wasn't a hurricane. What happened?
1: Sandy began as a very typical hurricane in the Caribbean. As it moved up the coast, it collided with this enormous nor'easter that had swept across most of the country. Nor'easters derive their energy from the atmosphere and from you know, differentials in terms of pressure hurricanes derive their energy from warmth and moisture in the ocean. Usually when they meet, they kind of become pea soup and they cancel each other out. But in this case, they become, became this very bizarre hybrid sort of monster of a storm that had the worst characteristics of both and really fell through the cracks in terms of modeling, in terms of surge prediction, in terms of all these other factors that we have that create some knowability for us all.
0: Was this perfect storm, as it were, such an outlier and such an odd event that we could spend a lot of time analyzing it and not necessarily really gain a lot because it was such an outlier?
1: It was an outlier in terms of historical precedent, and that's part of why um, it was so difficult to deal with. A lot of the models that we use to predict storms rely on historical precedent, and certain Sandy was unusual in that way. But what meteorologists told me over and over again is that's no longer true. And these historical precedents that we've relied on before, hurricanes tend to do this or that, is no longer accurate. We're kind of in this no-man's land in terms of forecasting, and so we have to create new systems and new models that are going to do this work for us.
0: One of the other things that comes out of this this lack of faith people have in, in the government and in the way all of this is handled is that so many people who were even ordered to evacuate in Sandy that you talk about, decided not to evacuate something like 70%.
1: That's right. And that was the most terrifying statistic for me in the book as a whole. And uh, there was a huge study that was done that sort of examined why people didn't go. And uh, there was... A variety of answers. Some people were really confused. They didn't know what kind of a storm it was. Some people thought, well, Irene came through the year before and didn't do any damage. And some people just didn't know where to go to get the information. Or in the case of some of the most vulnerable people in New York City, they weren't able to get out. They didn't have the means. And so they were literally trapped in flooding homes.
0: Talk a little bit about what you found in talking to people as to why they didn't evacuate
1: well I think really it comes down to how we deal with risk and I asked several scientists and social scientists who deal with risk why does this happen? And they said, you know, if you ask the average American, what are the largest risks that we face on a daily basis? Most of us will say nuclear disaster and terrorist attacks. And in fact, those are pretty much at the bottom of the list. In a daily basis, you know, we, we um, have more potential danger every time we get into our car and, and also dealing with natural disaster But we just tend to underestimate that. We tend to think that, you know, that doesn't happen anymore. And so we stay, you know, we build and compromise zones. We don't get prepared for everything from tornadoes to earthquakes to hurricanes. And then we suffer the results.
0: Talk a little bit about the difference in response between New York and New Jersey, because in many ways that goes to the heart of what happened once the storm hit.
1: That's right. In New Jersey, we saw a very aggressive stance taken by Governor Christie, uh, very early on about, you know, th- over three days before the storm made landfall. He was calling for mandatory evacuations. He made a series of decisions, um, everything from, um, saying that people didn't have to pay tolls on interstates, to um, telling local communities that they could take any action necessary. There was a great quote where he said, you know, it's better to act now and ask for forgiveness later. Um, Very aggressive stance. And we saw a lot of New Jerseyans who heeded that warning. In New York, what we saw was something very different. New York City really dragged its feet, Um, and there was this bizarre press conference that Mayor Bloomberg hosted less than two days before the storm made landfall, where he basically told New Yorkers, look, everything's fine. Don't worry about it. Um, And he got a lot of of flack and criticism for that. It started a real media storm. Uh, People on the Weather Channel, bloggers, people in the National Hurricane Center were just you know, vociferous in their, their anger and their disbelief. How could this be happening in the biggest, country, the dis- biggest city in the country? And um, it wasn't until about, I don't know, 18 hours later that New York reversed its decision, and by then it was too late.
0: Was it a decision that Bloomberg made on his own, or was he getting bad information, and if so, from whom?
1: That's a very controversial question, and it was one of those uh, situations where it was he said, she said when I asked When I asked the New York City Office of Emergency Management, they said they were getting bad information from the National Weather Service. When I asked the National Weather Service, they said they were giving the city all the information they needed, but the city was confused and didn't know what to do with it. I don't know if we're ever going to have the true story, but what we do know is that the communication, the decision-making fell down, and we can't have that happen again.
0: Is it your sense that if this storm happened again tomorrow, that the response would be any different?
1: I guess it depends on what aspect of the storm we're looking at. The National Hurricane Center now has the ability to issue advisories for storms that are other than pure hurricanes. So in that case, we hope that that domino effect won't happen as rapidly. We still have this infrastructure crisis in terms of meteorologists and their ability to do their work. We still have a lack of infrastructure in terms of physical infrastructure. We don't have barriers. We've compromised our wetlands. We've compromised our dunes. And we also have this disconnect where Americans don't take warnings seriously. So in that aspect, we run the risk of another Sandy any day now.
0: How much does the reality of rising sea levels play a role in, in, one, in Sandy, and two, how we need to respond in the future?
1: it plays an enormous role in all of this. You know, for, for every inch, basically, that the sea level rises, we have, you know, a, a whole constituency of people who are now in flood zones. And that happens everywhere. You know, when we look at things like tsunamis on the West Coast, um, as much, level rises we have, it is going to push that tsunami that much further in. And so as a country, we really need to start asking questions about the degree to which we're willing to change a lot of our culture to accommodate this new change in terms of our climate.
0: One of the things that I think people don't realize is the degree to which so much of New York exists in a floodplain that is not dissimilar from New Orleans.
1: That's right. In fact, they, are, they run neck and neck in terms of the amount of infrastructure that is in a floodplain. The difference, of course, is that New Orleans has a massive levee system specifically designed to help it. Because New York just assumed that hurricanes were so unlikely, it invested next to nothing in terms of hurricane protection.
0: To what extent is the fo- are the forecasting models that are being used today more accurate than they were perhaps two years ago?
1: Certainly, the forecasting models improve all the time, and the more we can invest in research and development, they'll continue. Um, One really scary aspect of this for me is that the best models rely on information that we gather from polar orbiting satellites. The two polar orbiting satellites that the U.S. employs are both well beyond their lifespan and really could die any day now. If that happens, we're going to have another ripple effect. Our best chance right now is to be buying this data from China, and that poses some major national security risks.
0: Why haven't we funded this more appropriately, particularly in the past two years?
1: That is definitely the million-dollar or billion-dollar question, as it may be. Part of it is the location of the National Weather Service. Uh, President Nixon, in what many people say was a political move, decided to place this organization in the Department of Commerce, which is not a natural and obvious fit. So NOAA really struggles to get its funding. For a while, it was tied directly to NASA, and we had a lot of infighting between the two organizations. President Obama separated that connection, but again, it left NOAA scrambling to recreate its satellite program. And really, I think that as a country, we don't assume that weather is as intrinsically tied to our daily lives as it really is.
0: Why is that? I mean, there's certainly an obsession that people, particularly in, on the East Coast, certainly more than California, I suppose, people are obsessed with weather. We have a million weather apps on our phones There, there is this interest in weather. People watch the Weather Channel. Where where does this go wrong?
1: Well, I think we love the drama and we love the narrative of it, uh, but we don't necessarily demand on the science. You know, if you take Mm -hmm. a look at, for instance, Mexico, um, far below us in terms of you know GDP, things like that. Mexico has a very sophisticated earthquake warning system, you know, people in Mexico get texts, you know, minutes before an earthquake happens. Uh, What scientists tell me is that we could have that technology here if we demanded it, but instead, you know, we have allocations of money going to different things. So we have to prioritize it. And as American citizens, we have to say, we demand this. We want to be on par with Mexico, Japan, Canada. We deserve that and the security that it provides.
0: Where does the Pentagon and the military fit into this? Because certainly the Coast Guard was literally and figuratively at ground zero.
1: That's right. And uh, so was the uh, Hurricane Hunter organization, which is an arm of the Air Force. Um, And I think that raises a good point, is just how interwoven all of these different organizations are. And, uh, you know, part of Sandy was um, the sinking of the bounty, which uh, resulted in one of the most expensive and most dangerous Coast Guard rescues in the history of the organization. So they obviously rely on it as well, and, and we rely on them.
0: And has the military pushed for additional funding in this area?
1: Well, part of the problem here is that the military has its own weather satellite program. So they rely on that data, and that's part of the split, is we have military weather, we have civilian weather. They're different organizations, they're different funding streams. Until we pull them together, our priorities are split.
0: Is there a sense, or has there been any talk within Congress or within the administration to pull all of these elements together? There is, and there is some
1: debate on Capitol Hill. I think there's a lot of different interests happening. Um, the GAO just put our, our weather satellite program on its its watch list. It had to take off uh, the IRS, in <laughs> convenience in the IRS to put it on the watch list. So that ought to tell us about just how bad this has gotten. Um, but really, you know, obviously, you know, Congress is responding to, to us, you know, in addition to, to other interests. And, and I think they're really sort of waiting to hear just how strongly we're willing to stomp our feet.
0: Is there a role here and are we seeing any kind of creative destruction, as it were, with respect to private companies getting involved in this space?
1: We really have seen the democratization of weather and that comes with both advantages and opportunities and also challenges. So instead of getting our weather information from one source, we're getting it from lots of different sources. In the case of something like New York City, different agencies within New York City go to different places for their weather. The sanitation um, office uses AccuWeather. Um, the uh, streets may use the National Weather Service. And when it comes to things like intensities of winter storms, we may see very different reports. So because it's been privatized, We have a lot more access, but we have a lot more information. And I think as a culture, we have a hard time sifting through that information and figuring out what the actual story really is.
0: With respect to Sandy, how different was the the various different groups in terms of what they were predicting, if you looked at all these different weather sources? Well, in
1: terms of models, early on we saw a very wide divergence uh the national hurricane center uses about 40 different models for its prediction early on only one model the european model was the one that was suggesting that the storm would turn inland and hit new york so for several days that was the outlier and i think most forecasters assumed that it was wrong um, as the store as the models started to resolve themselves They really reached a consensus about four days before the storm hit. And at that point, the forecasts were really quite good. And if you look at the error rate for the prediction of Sandy, it was much smaller than with many other storms. But because it wasn't a hurricane, because the information wasn't coming from the National Hurricane Center, even though these forecasts were accurate, the message somehow got garbled by the time it reached the American people.
0: Why were... Christie and New Jersey willing to act on it so early?
1: That's a really great question, and I don't know the exact answer. But one reason was um, one of the real heroes of the book, uh, a meteorologist named Gary Sazatsky, and he runs the forecasting office that services New Jersey, Delaware, and Philadelphia. He really early on saw the danger of the storm And he also really early on saw the confusion that was happening in terms of getting the message out. And he risked both his job and his reputation to start making these personal pleas and statements sort of demanding that people started to pay attention. He bucked protocol. He bucked trend. um, But he really saw himself as having this ethical responsibility, and he saved what I'm sure are dozens, if not hundreds, of lives.
0: What did he see in the models? What made him realize that this was going to be this kind of a superstorm?
1: He saw this European model. He saw the way that eventually these other models were starting to come over. And he also saw that ultimately it wasn't going to matter where the eye of the storm hit. A lot of people follow that sort of thin black line that shows where the eye of the storm is going. But by the time a storm is a thousand miles in diameter, it's an irrelevant conversation. And he got that really quickly. And so he was saying, look, Virginia... Maine, it doesn't matter where it makes landfall, we're going to feel the effects, so we need to do something right now.
0: How much was Katrina in everyone's mind in responding to Sandy?
1: That's one place where we have really seen improvement. The lesson that I think we learned with Katrina is how deadly and catastrophic it is when we stay flat-footed after a storm. Uh, The FEMA response after Sandy was infinitely better. And uh, in one of the the more dramatic moments in the book, the forecasters at the National Hurricane Center are getting ready for a conference call, and they assume that they're going to be talking to some mid-level managers at FEMA, and uh, the video conference call pops up, and it's President Obama, and they're like, oh my gosh, you know, (laughs) And, and he was like, look, you know, how quickly can we get people in? How quickly can we start aid and recovery? And it was that decisiveness that made sure that while the death rate was still way too high for anyone to to find it acceptable, it was not nearly as high as it could have been.
0: And the irony, I suppose, is if that same level of preparedness, if that same level of effort had been put into prediction and warnings and preparation, it might have required a lot less money and effort in the aftermath.
1: Exactly. It was so many natural disasters. We tend to be responsive after the fact instead of proactive before the fact and uh, you know it's easy to see when we have these dramatic pictures of the red cross coming into a disaster area we see why that's a good and wonderful thing the the investment beforehand is much more invisible and so i think we tend to undervalue it because we don't see exactly how it's going to save lives But if we can do that, we won't need these incredible recovery projects nearly as fully as we do now.
0: Catherine Miles, her book is Superstorm, Nine Days Inside Hurricane Sandy. Catherine, I thank you so much for spending time with us today.
1: It was my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.